came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. I'm Xenia Chmutina. And I'm Darian Alexander-Williams. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Today's episode is part of season four. Thank you for tuning in. Okay, welcome back to Disasters Deconstructed. Hey, Xenia. Hi, Jason. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. I've got a question for you. How's your New Year resolution going? Have you been reading lots of books at weekends? <laughs> I think you, I, that was a mean question because you kind, know, of, you kind of know the answer to some degree. So, <laughs> yes, I've, I've, been, I've been reading a lot, but um, as some of those who are taking my classes this semester might know, um, I've been doing a lot of reading for my for my teaching as well because I'm I'm looking into um, research theory and research paradigms. So that's been like taking a lot of my time in the last three months, which has been really cool mm-hmm. actually and very enriching for me personally. But there's so many books that I've started. Like if you look on my Goodreads, I've got ten at least books in progress. I, I can't look at your Goodreads. It like it gives me palpitations. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry about that. But it, it's like I I've definitely got a lot of books in progress, and um, I was doing pretty good in the last couple of weeks to try to finish a few of those off. Mm-hmm. But I also started some new ones, so yeah, I, I have a problem, and <laughs> I I definitely haven't got anywhere with fiction. Sorry. You better. You better. You know, I'm I'm, I'm watching you. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, you know, well, obviously we've we've been reading a lot. I, I don't know how you read books in parallel because I I don't really. I read maybe three books in parallel usually, mm-hmm. um, but no more um, than that. And you know, there are sort of they're different enough uh, for me to follow them. But you know, I've been thinking so much about books and translation because, as as you know, I read books in English and in Russian, and. Wouldn't it be amazing to be able to read all the books in the original language, right? Yeah. Um, particularly now that, you know, we've been, both of us have been reading a lot of theory. And of course, uh, much of it has been written either in German or in French, right? And then very often you get the translation, kind of the original term in brackets. And I'm always so jealous of kind of people who can read in like seven languages. Mm-hmm. And I also think how amazing it would be to read papers, academic papers that are published not in English, right? Um, and of course, in today's interview, we'll be talking a little bit about that. And I, I wish, I wish I could read in Spanish so I could engage with the work that Lorette publishes in Spanish um, as well as in English. Yeah, it's a big missing component to most um, most discussions, I suppose. and. And indeed, a lot of, like when you read any research paper in a lot of the, the main major disaster journals, even the literature that is cited is rarely engaging mm-hmm. with um, research 
that's been published in other languages. So, and this kind of gets to some of the things that we've been exploring in some of our work on on translation and kind of the the Eurocentric and Anglophone dominance in disaster research. I, I can't wait for this um, episode to air because I think it, it challenges some of those um, issues that we have within our field. Absolutely. It'll be great to hear about what's happening in Latin America and the Caribbean. So let's go. The reason we originally started this podcast was because our work has come to emphasize that disasters are socially constructed, and there was no podcast doing this regularly. If you've been with us over our first three seasons, and indeed in this season four, so far we've often discussed various dimensions of disaster risk creation with our guests. And today we want to continue this conversation with someone who many of our listeners working in the Latin America and the Caribbean region will be very familiar with. And it is our absolute pleasure to welcome Irasema Alcantara Ayala. Hi, Irasema. Hello. Wonderful to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Irasema is a professor of natural hazards and risk at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. And her research combines natural science with social science and focuses on the social construction of disasters. So, Irisema, I wanted to start off by asking you about La Red. For those who don't know, that is the Network of Social Studies on the Prevention of Disasters in Latin America. It's become the most influential group analyzing disasters in Latin America and the Caribbean. The work of La Red is respected by disaster scholars all around the world, and it's really a great example of an intellectual community of connected individuals. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about Lared and perhaps about the tradition of disaster research in the region. Yeah, well, Jason, yes, Lared is indeed the most influential group in disaster risk studies in this part of the world. And I could say that also it has been pretty much in the global map since it was created in 1992 in, in Costa Rica. Um, I think that the magic of La Red is given by the chemistry and the high level of commitment of its members. But also that magic is related to the development of its vision by taking into account the research carried out by social scientists from countries such as the United Kingdom, Canada, the United States, and other nations from Europe. Mm-hmm. Additionally, um, of great value are its early contributions to the interface between social and natural sciences within a framework of advocacy, cooperation, cross-continental integration, education, and political action. Can you imagine having together figures such as Pierce Blake, Ian Burton, Terry Cannon, Ian Davis, Kenneth Hewitt, Robert mm-hmm. Cates and Ben Wiesner, mm-hmm. along with Andrew Muscri, Alan LaBelle, Tony Oliver-Smith, Omar Dario, Cardona, and other dear colleagues, has been crucial to studies of disasters and disaster risk yeah. in Latin America and the Caribbean, and, and I could say the entire world. It is just like having a dream team or the fellowship <laughs> of the disaster risk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, members of La Red were indeed pioneers in addressing different key issues 
that are even nowadays, as you know, in the spotlight of the international disaster risk reduction agenda. And certainly in the disaster risk management sphere at regional and particularly at, at local levels. Well, perhaps, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, perhaps the most common notion is that of the need to understand that disasters are not naturally but socially constructed. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, as you well know, Senia, these terms of disasters as natural is still being used by different stakeholders, mm-hmm. including some academicians in different parts of the world. Some of the recent trends are still linked to those concepts developed by La Red a few years ago. For example, the intrinsic nexus between disaster risk development and environment and the significance of disaster risk management at the local level, to mention a couple of them. Other trends that have been included in the last years are associated with the importance of considering small and medium-sized disasters versus large disasters and the challenge of moving into an integrated disaster research perspective. I think what you've just said is just so important and that we cannot really understand disasters from one particular side, right? Using one particular lens or one particular ontology. Um, and very often when we talk about non-natural disasters message, this is the message that we have to promote, particularly to natural scientists that, you know, who take kind of hazard approach um, and forget about the social construction of disasters. And there is a lot of rhetoric about the combination of social science and natural science and engineering, right? And how we all need to talk together, work together and talk and so on and so forth. And we've discussed this um, at length. But in reality, I guess we actually see very little encouragement, you know, by funders, for example, to do so. So how can we bridge the silos in disaster studies? What are your experiences? You know, how do we really push transdisciplinary collaborations like collaboration that we see in La Red? Yeah, well, I, I, I couldn't agree more with you on this topic. It is of one of my major concerns. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, many of us have witnessed that there are research projects, publications, and other activities which are supposed to be undertaken by social and natural scientists, engineers, and specialists in different fields of technology. However, Although we might feel that we do integrated science, in many cases, it is only a pretending effort. First of all, I think that the current and former architectures of the curricula at universities have not really taken into account such a challenge. With very few exceptions, students are barely formed in a transdisciplinary fashion. Mm -hmm. Well, on the other hand, we have to accept that we do not know how to carry out integrated transdisciplinary research. With the prevalence of traditional monodisciplinary efforts focused mainly on on hazard understanding, hazard dynamics, monitoring, forecasting, and so on. For example, the incorporation of sustainability frameworks to reduce disaster risks, which is mainly and by nature a transdisciplinary approach, makes this task a pretty hard journey. I would say that as a third point, 
we are not humble enough to admit that maybe we are not interested in working in that integrated orientation. And what is more, there are some loose ends on which social science is still undervalued by some natural scientists. Well, my, my feeling is that the best answer to overcome the lack of encouragement to preach the silos on disaster and disaster risk studies should be related to the formation of a new generation. We need to change the way we see and understand the world and need to provide the next generation of stakeholders and decision makers with tools based on integrated perspectives. Well, of course, however, this does not mean that we should forget about the current situation and therefore we need action at local level. We need to have social and natural scientists and other stakeholders working together, doing fieldwork to experience the need to collaborate and learning from each other with real cases. We have to experience out there in the field the necessity to solve problems based on a more holistic approach. It requires indeed collaboration, commitment, good chemistry. It could certainly take time, but I am convinced that it is a, a, a it is worth it. I I really like this positive message, and I you know I particularly like that you emphasize the importance of kind of chemistry and relationship, right? Uh, because I guess if people don't like each other very much, it becomes very difficult <laughs> to work mm. together. Um, but I just wonder. I mean, we've been talking about non-natural disasters uh, for centuries, right? And uh, academically, the seminal piece uh, taking natural naturalness out of natural disasters from what 1976. Um, so many people know about it, and so many people admire it. And yet, we have to still spend so much of our time trying to convince people, right, that disaster is not natural. Um, so, how how do we change the new generation and how do we encourage them to engage with our ideas? Um, I just, I don't know, you know, I, I, as, as much inspiration as we all have. Um, I find it really quite difficult sometimes. Well, yes, I, I agree with you. It's so difficult to bring that to the table. And, uh, but I guess uh, the, the starting point, uh, as I mentioned, is the good chemistry. If, mm. if people work together without a common objective, a common goal, a common feeling, and in a good relation, I, I don't think it would be possible really to share concerns, to overcome difficulties, and so on. And, uh, you know, in, in, in my experience, I've been working with uh, natural social scientists, engineers, and, and so on. And, and the best way we have started uh, good collaborations is precisely in the field. Because uh, we need to, to make a space to talk to people, to understand their thinking, and to value the, their knowledge. I, I think that if you go to the field and you see a particular problem and, 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 and you give your uh, um, ideas, uh, your thinking, and you are also a good listener. That will mm -hmm. allow you to start moving into a relationship. Otherwise, it is just impossible. I had also an experience in which I was called for a project that it was supposed to be a transdisciplinary project. And, and, and some of the colleagues had no idea about the meaning. And I, I felt like at the university because they wanted to, to work 
uh, in uh, each, each one of them and then bring together in the final work everything together and that is not transdisciplinarity mm. so mm. yeah and, and that's reality we we are not conscious about the meaning of transdisciplinary uh, efforts so we need to do this together as societies include the new generation bring them to the field and, and try to to overcome all these difficulties but in the real world otherwise i don't think we will move too much I think um, we've talked about this before on the podcast, Ksenia, where like you and I have had the experience of kind of being the so, the um, social scientists in the room invited to kind of lend social science credibility to a project that doesn't really understand social science. A token social scientist. Token That's my favorite scientist. role. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I think you enjoy token women as well, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah, the token yeah. women, token female social scientist is my particularly favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, is, it has become just a label. I mean, everybody wants to have mm. women in social science in the projects, but with no further meaning. Mm. That's so, right. It's a yeah. challenge. It's a real challenge. I, I mean, listening to that, um, to that, your answer, Rissema, I'm, I'm thinking... Like the, the importance of relationship is so central and um, training a, a new generations of, of scientists to work in a different way, right? But and we've talked about this in the show previously about kind of the power relations and the things that keep people working in their silos, you know? And, um, you know, the, the fact that when you submit a project that's truly transdisciplinary, a proposal, it's almost less likely to be seriously considered because the whole system is geared towards silos, right? So it's it's tricky. Yeah, it is tricky, but but also you know, I, I, although it is not uh, well recognized yet, there are also some initiatives at the international level, for example, supported by the International Science Council, on which interdisciplinary efforts are very well valued. So I think we need to take advantage of those small opportunities we have. That as as you mentioned, of course, it's not as 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 they are not as big as we would like them to be. Yeah. But but still, we we have to to go and we have to work with our students. We have to work when you go to a conference and and, and you you give your talk and, and and we just need to bring people on board and, and try to explain the the advantages of of the transdisciplinary perspective yeah mm -hmm. no i i agree and it's always interesting you you end up with people coming back from their first time working across disciplines and being like we found that we really need to do this more We're like yeah you do <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah thanks for that yeah amazing it's so so nice exactly. yeah exactly <laughs> No, but, but I guess there are a lot of new programs in disaster risk and disaster risk management and so on that also are helping us to bridge that gap. 
Uh, mm. I remember when I was a student in the Jurassic, the Upper Jurassic <laughs> University, there was <laughs> nothing about this, nothing yeah. at all. And yeah. now you can see a lot of uh, offered academic offers for students, so that it's changing slowly, but it is changing. Yeah, no, that is that is positive. I like that you have a positive um, outlook on this for sure. I mean, Ksenia and I en end up becoming quite cynical sometimes. <laughs> well, sometimes, <laughs> yeah, it depends on what you are doing or what you are involved with. Yeah, you feel yeah. like that. I have been in that <laughs> position as well. <laughs> Don't worry. So in your work, you highlight that disasters are socially constructed and you've done quite a lot of um, collaboration with the Forensic Investigation of Disaster Project, investigating causes and drivers of risk creation. And we've seen in recent years quite a lot of research that's focusing in on the importance of considering vulnerability more and how risk is actually created. But it doesn't always seem to be translating very well into practice. So in your opinion, what are the key barriers to actually um, bringing this into our practice, especially in Latin America and the Caribbean? Yeah, well, this is a key question, Jason. Um, Unfortunately, theory does not always lead to practice. And although there is much more information and interest on identifying the root causes and disaster risk drivers, as you mentioned, that is not reflected in the practice yet. In the case of Latin America and the Caribbean, and perhaps also it applies to other regions of the world, we face a series of obstacles when we want to translate this type of concerns and knowledge into practice. In our context, I see several major aspects which, of course, are interrelated that, that has to be taken into account. First of all, the current practice is still focused on disaster management or emergency response right. instead of being centered on disaster risk reduction. Mm -hmm. Many of the institutions in charge of reducing disaster risk in Latin America and the Caribbean are civil protection agencies, which have been historically involved in disaster response, and therefore the policy and practice have not been transformed at all. Secondly, and, and, and very much in association with the, the former point, there is a lack of or inadequate understanding of disaster risk, and hence we go back to the disaster emergency response unique orientation. Mm. Other issues involve deficient knowledge and skills needed for proper management of disaster risk, failure to implement legal frameworks, weak disaster risk governance, and the continued practice of priorities in the benefit of economic interests over science-informed decision making. Right. Likewise, I, I think that one of the main challenges we have ahead is to improve the science policy making interface. Mm. In the Latin American context and certainly in Mexico, we need to undertake several urgent strategies. One of them, for example, is related to the lack of different actors that can be seriously involved in disaster risk reduction and disaster risk management. We need to support professional development that draw together essential skills, cross-curricular approaches, and action-based learning capabilities for public servants and all relevant disaster risk reduction stakeholders. If they don't know what to do, 
we are in big trouble. And if they don't know how to do it, if they do not understand disaster risk, we are really facing a, a big challenge there. On the other hand, although some work has been done with research and education institutions, I feel that in this side of the world, we still need to strengthen collaboration among universities at regional and subnational scales and building partnerships between the science and the technology community and the relevant authorities to ensure science-based or informed decision-making becomes the norm rather than random events. Mm. We have already mentioned the need to move towards an increasing integrated disaster risk research, which is rather important. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, although it is included in the Sendai framework, creating and implementing scientific committees to support policymaking at national, subnational, state, and if possible, although I know it is difficult, but it would be great to have also municipal levels. But we are still, um, we still have this, this uh, task pending ahead of us. Mm. Uh, well, there are also good practices at local level in Latin America, but there are not as many as needed. Therefore, we also have to bring to the table the commitment to conduct research to establish and strengthen a solid community of, of practice. And, uh, well, finally, I could say that particularly in Mexico, for example, it is urgent to develop strong subnational alliances of stakeholders to support disaster reduction and disaster risk management initiatives. Like the way that you've um, positioned disaster risk as a much uh, broader and more complex like system of, of risk creation is, is so much more encompassing than the way that disasters are conceived of by many mm-hmm. policymakers and indeed by the public, which is largely informed by the media framing. So, and it's kind of one of the big things that we talk about repeatedly on this show is about how this framing of disasters as being very much about the hazard, you know, about the the damage that was caused by the hurricane or the earthquake, rather than this broader socio-political context. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think I always come back to, it's not just about the language that we use, like natural disaster, we need to stop people using the language. It's the over, it's the overarching framing of the cause you know because Mm -hmm. there's some there's some agencies that we see changing the language but the way that it's framed is still the same it's still they still blame the earthquake or the or the hurricane right yes definitely Uh, and i think that has been the problem for several years uh, since of course uh, 1976 and then the the book of uh, disasters are not natural Mm -hmm. uh, by andrew maskery and so on i i I don't think that the uh well social scientists work on that but not at the international level or the international bodies or agencies related to disasters, they really didn't mm. put a lot of attention in explaining the meaning of, of the, the need to take off the natural from, from disasters. Right. And I see that, for example, nowadays we are in 2020, 
and there is a starting point at the international level with the UNDRR office with a campaign, disasters are not natural, yep. but that does not explain anything. For mm. example, it's, it's, it's very common to have um, politicians or other stakeholders, at least in this side of the world, talking about uh, the, co- the social construction of disasters and, and repeating uh, not, uh, disasters are not natural. They are socially constructed, mm-hmm. but they don't have a clue of the yeah. meaning. Yeah. And because you can see that the work <laughs> they are doing in terms of managing is managing disasters. They are not managing the disaster risk. Yeah. And, right. and, and it is just terrible. And I, I, I get usually very frustrated when uh, a politician in Mexico starts uh, a, a conference by saying, oh yes, we know that naturals are no disasters, are socially constructed, and we have put a lot of money to, to, to have more dogs for rescue when a disaster has right. taken place and, and so on. So that exactly is, is the major concern, yeah. that we have not been able to transmit the significance mm-hmm. of, of the causes of disasters uh, versus the consequence. So there is very difficult for everybody, because even with the students, uh, to differentiate between disaster and, and disaster risk. Sometimes when I explain to my students that, they, they, they are shocked. They are, oh, really? Is that the difference? Because they <laughs> are immersed in this media stuff where yeah. everything is after the disaster has taken place and and for example uh, uh, when there is a hurricane season of course you have to go here and there or you have to evacuate and, and so on and so on and and the forecast of the uh, hurricane or the category of the hurricane but but when do we see the vulnerability the exposure of the people along the, the path of the hurricane on tv Mm-hmm. When can we get that information? And also, other issue is that because disasters, uh, without taking into account now the, the pandemic, but in general, disasters are, are very focused or localized in time. We are targeted with a lot of information about the disaster on a specific time framework. But we are not listening to those problems related to disaster risk, to those cause, causes of disaster risk, Every day, if we were uh, more commonly associated with this type of, of, of circumstances, challenges, causes of disasters, and so on, it could be an easier task to understand that not, that disasters are not natural. So mm-hmm. it's it's tricky, yes, of course. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I really can't agree more with everything that you said, and um, in fact, my it kind of leads to my next question and. Um, you've recently published the editorial called Root Causes and Policy Dilemmas of the COVID-19 Pandemic Global Disaster. Um, and of course, the co-authorship uh, of that editorial is just absolutely fantastic. So for our listeners, if you haven't read it yet, please go and check it out. Um, and this editorial, you all emphasize that transforming the underlying risk factors is a global challenge. But I guess we all know that one of the virtues of neoliberalism and also the resilience resilience agenda that has now kind of became a right hand of um, neoliberal agenda. Um, so the virtue of neoliberalism is to make everything an individual responsibility, right? Um, and if you're resilient as an individual, that's great. And kind of you don't need help any longer. So how do we 
tackle this in disaster risk reduction? You know, how should we use a disaster? And, you know, we can now use an example of a pandemic as an opportunity to actually challenge disaster risk creation instead of talk about the same old kind of disaster is a shock, you know, and or we've got rescue dogs to help sort of thing. <laughs> yes. Well, this this question is in itself a challenge and making everything in an individual responsibility is a very, very complex issue that could require a lot of debate from different scholars. However, what I can say is that we still need to learn from disasters in terms of opportunities. I, I must confess that I do not feel very optimistic at the moment under the current circumstances we have in Mexico, Latin America and the Caribbean in terms of the disaster triggered by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, beyond individual responsibility, which of course in this case is very much linked to personal exposure to COVID and the way communities are getting infected, Weak disaster risk governance is dramatically amplifying the adverse impact of the disaster. If governors and other decision makers are not attentive and willing to link policy making and science at this moment and to accept at least that we urgently need to reduce vulnerability and exposure of people, I just don't know when. Mm. But... On the other side of the coin, actually the bright side of the coin, I cannot think of a better example and moment to help people to understand the social construction of risk. We are living in a disaster. We have been part of this, let's call it, slow motion disaster for several months and still we have some months to go. And it is easy or it could be easy to use this bad experience as an example to explain the complex and intrinsic interactions between hazards, vulnerability, and exposure, the key ingredients of disaster risk. So if people is living this disaster, it would be easier really to understand how um, disasters are socially constructed. Likewise, what I like from this experience is that scientists from all over the world, from different disciplines, have deeply engaged in trying to understand or deconstruct this disaster of the pandemic from different mm -hmm. silos. Mm -hmm. And those who were not familiar with the need to move towards a transdisciplinary perspective, I am pretty sure that derived from the current situation might consider a change, mm. a very significant change, so that science, technology, and society can collaborate and, and be unified for a, for a better world. Thank you so much for these positive messages. I, I love that we are able to talk about disasters with hope, you know, and a positive outlook. I think it's just so important that we don't just get bogged down um, in the negative messages. So thank you so much for bringing this positivity. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe.
And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. been listening to Xenia, Jason, and me, Irasema Alcantara Ayala, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. Keep listening, stay safe, and keep connected.